Amen. How to know the voice of God. Almost every evangelical out there today, you will hear them say, well, God spoke to me. God spoke to me and he told me to tell you that you need to do such and such. Uh, Pastor, God spoke to me and he told me to tell you that our church needs to go this direction. Lots of people out there claim that God is speaking to them. God told me this, God told me that. Have you ever heard people say that and it begins to make you wonder, what's wrong with me? You know, I, I don't hear God talk to me like that. Do these people have a closer walk with God than I do? Is there something wrong with my walk with the Lord? Am I not even saved? Because I just, I just don't hear God talk to me the way that all these other people claim that He talks to them. If that has ever crossed your mind, if it has ever made you wonder or worry, I hope that this session will be an encouragement to you as we talk about how God does and does not speak to us today. Now, I want us to define a couple of terms here because these terms are very often misunderstood. The first is revelation. Revelation refers to God revealing new information that up to that point has been previously hidden. So God revealing something new. And you may have heard some people today say things like, well, God really gave me revelation on this. God gave me a revelation on that. Uh, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Because God's not revealing anything new today that is not already revealed in his word. Now, what may have happened is illumination. Illumination refers to the enabling work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of us as believers to understand and appropriate to obey the truths already recorded in Scripture. Uh, most of us as believers, we can give testimony to various points in our lives when we're reading the Word of God and maybe we're reading a passage that we've read a hundred times before, but all of a sudden, what happens? The light comes on. And then you're like, oh, that's what that means. That, that, now I get it. Now it makes sense. So that's illumination. So illumination should be happening in the lives of us as believers. So uh, illumination, yes, but revelation, no. So we need to understand those terms. Now, divine revelation knowledge, this was a concept that was begun by Essek W. Kenyon. He, he's the one who first coined the term. Kenyon believed in two types of knowledge. The first is sensory knowledge, that which we get through our five senses, sight, sound, taste, smell, and touch. And the other is revelation knowledge, and this is supernatural knowledge that comes only from God. Now, according to Kenyon, the catch to this is that these two spheres of knowledge are mutually exclusive. And what that means is, is that reasoning or logical thought is of no value. So if you really want to go deep with God, if you want to get to the deep, secret, hidden things of God, then you've got to disengage your mind, put, put the old noodle in park. Is that what the Bible tells us to do? No, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. He gave us a mind for a reason. He wants us to use it. The Bible never enjoins us to disengage our minds when it comes to the things of God. Not at all. But God's speaking to people. It's a very common theme in the evangelical movement today. I want to give you just several examples of this. Uh, this is by Beth Moore. Beth Moore 
if evangelicalism had a female pope, it would be it would be Beth Moore. Beth Moore is problematic on many, many, many levels. But in one of her books, Praying God's Word, Beth Moore writes this, What little I know, I want others to know. Before God tells me a secret, he knows up front I'm going to tell it. Now let's pause right there just for a second. Does that even make any sense? So God is telling her secrets, but he knows that she's going to tell it. So is it really a secret? That doesn't even make any sense. And she says, by and large, that's our deal. You see, Beth Moore and the Alpha and Omega have their own little deal going on between the two of them. A very special deal, a very intimate deal. And if you don't have your own little special intimate deal with God, then you're just not as spiritual as Beth Moore is because they've got their own little deal going on. And this secret, okay, before God tells me a secret, that's Gnosticism. Gnosticism was this ancient heresy, it's derived from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, and the Gnostics believed in this secret divine revelation knowledge through which you could obtain salvation. And so what we're seeing today in modern evangelicalism is a warmed-over version of the ancient heresy known as Gnosticism. And it, it divides Christians into classes, the haves and the have-nots. And so if you get dreams and visions from God, and God speaks to you in still small voices and all that, you're a have. But if you're one of these poor old souls and all you've got is the Bible indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then you're a have-not. That's not very special. It's a modern-day version of, of Gnosticism. Beth Moore writes this in her, another book, When Godly People Do Ungodly Things. She said, I heard the voice of God speak to my heart, come and play. I love that he said, come, not go, come. That meant he was already there. I also love how I could tell by the sweet tone of his silent voice. What does that even mean? <laughs> the sweet tone of his silent voice? What is a silent voice? And if, it, if, he, if she did hear his voice and yet it was silent, then how does it have a tone? That doesn't even make any sense. But she said, I could tell by the sweet tone of his silent voice that he was smiling. I could have outlined his expression with my finger. Ooh. I mean, friends, that's creepy. That's just downright creepy. And something that you'll notice about the vast majority, with rare exception, one exception would be a lady named Susan Heck, but with rare exception... Susan Heck's good. But all these other popular female Bible teachers, they have a very romanticized view of Jesus. Jesus is their boyfriend. That's how they speak of Jesus, like he's their boyfriend. Beth Moore's no different. She says, I built a snowman. I laughed with God. He laughed with me. I am so in love with him. I am so in love with him. Such a close relationship has Beth Moore with Jesus Christ that she apparently goes out and builds snowmen with him. Have you ever built a snowman with Jesus? Well, if you've never built a snowman with Jesus, then you apparently don't have as close a relationship with Christ as does Beth Moore. This is absurd. She's building snowmen with the second person of the triune God. And... Later in the, in the same page, if it's not the same page, it's the very next page, but she's talking about this building a snowman with Jesus. She says that it was the most romantic 
experience that she's ever had. That's gross. That's gross. It's a romanticized view of Jesus. Hearing God speak outside of Scripture is almost universally accepted within evangelicalism today. And let me say this before I show you the next clips. Throughout the rest of our time, I'm going to show you some clips of people that are outright charlatans and heretics. I'm going to show you some clips of people, however, who are not necessarily outright, outright charlatans and heretics. Some of the clips you're going to see are from some people that might surprise you. You might think, oh, are you saying he's a false teacher? I'm not saying they're, all of these folks are false teachers. I'm showing you this broad spectrum because I want you to see how universally accepted it is amongst evangelicals today that God is speaking to us outside of Scripture and we should be hearing His voice on a regular basis. I'm going to show you just how universally accepted it is. Okay, So please do keep that in mind. Watch this from Rick Warren. Rick Warren is a false teacher, but watch this from Rick Warren. Last week, we began a new uh, mini-series on understanding how to hear the voice of God. Very few things are more important than this because you can't have a relationship to God if you can't hear God. If all you do is ever talk to Him in prayer and you never hear God speak to you, that's a one-way relationship. That isn't much of a relationship. So if all you ever do is talk to God but He never talks to you, then you don't really have much of a relationship with God. That's just a one-way. That's not much of a relationship. This from Priscilla Shire. Hi, I'm Priscilla Shire, and I'm hoping that you'll join me for a six-week journey as we talk about how we can hear and discern the voice of God in our lives. Do you really expect and anticipate that the divine voice of God can be heard by you? Do you really think that he loved you enough to die for you, but doesn't love you enough to then talk to you? She says, do you believe that he loved, enough, loved you enough to die for you, but doesn't love you enough to talk to you? What does she think this is? I mean, honestly, what does she think this is? What an insult to the word of God. This from Charles Stanley. So you're, are you asking if God speaks specifically? And the answer is, yes, he does. Let me give you two or three examples. Speaking about buying groceries, on a particular day, I had a very short period of time, and so I wanted to buy a turkey for Thanksgiving. My time was really running out. I thought, well, I shouldn't do this now. I said, God, just show me what to do. It's like God said, go to this store, buy the turkey now. Against sort of my will, I went. I walked right in, straight to the right place, the right pound of turkey, walked right out, paid it, got back in the car in less than about 25 minutes. Did God tell me to go? Yes, he did. Such a close relationship has Charles Stanley with God that God even tells him where to go get his Thanksgiving Day turkey. Has God ever told you where to go get your Thanksgiving Day turkey? Well, if he hasn't, then you must not have as close a walk with God as does Charles Stanley. God even tells him where to go get his turkey. And he went on in this clip to say that God told him which car to get. I mean, it's just, this is almost universally accepted 
amongst evangelicals. And Charles Stanley, at least theoretically, is not a charismatic. Practically, he is. But theoretically, he's not. And I would submit to you that the resource that is singularly most responsible for introducing charismatic theology into at least theoretically non-charismatic churches is Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby came on the scene in 1991. Before this, almost all non-charismatic churches would have understood that we speak to God in prayer, God speaks to us in the Bible. But after experience of God, now hardly anybody understands that. Hardly anybody does. Blackaby says, if you have trouble hearing God speak, you are in trouble at the very heart of your Christian experience. The stakes are high. So hearing God speak is a vitally important part of the Christian experience. And if you cannot hear God speak, if you cannot hear Him clearly speak, you're in trouble at the very heart of your Christian experience. Stakes are high. This from Sid, I mean, excuse me, uh, Sam Storms. Sam Storms practicing the power. Now, Sam Storms, soteriologically speaking, is reformed. He has a high view of the sovereignty of God, but he is a charismatic. And he says this, to be the recipient of prophetic revelation from God, whether in dreams, impressions, trances, visions, or words of knowledge and words of wisdom can be nothing short of euphoric. The experience brings feelings of nearness to God and a heightened sense of spiritual intimacy that isn't often the case with other of the charismata, with other of the spiritual gifts. So if you get dreams and visions and even trances, then that's, a, that's an intimate, euphoric experience with God, much more so than if you're one of these poor old souls and say you have the gift of teaching. That's not very intimate. You have the gift of mercy. Nah, no big deal. That's Gnosticism. It's a modern day version of Gnosticism. And this kind of teaching does an awful lot of damage to people in their walk with Christ, thinking that they've got to experience something euphoric to validate their relationship with God. And it simply is not true. Now, I want to show you a video clip. Now, I just want to brace you for what you're about to see. Sid Roth. Sid Roth has a program on TBN entitled It's Supernatural. And Sid Roth has the looniest of the loony guests you could possibly imagine. I mean, if somebody came up to me and put a gun to my head and said, Justin, I want you to come up with something out of your imagination off the top of your head that is crazier than the previous guest on Sid Roth, I'd say, pull the trigger. I, I got nothing. I mean, I literally believe if Sid Roth did not know who I was, and I know he, he does, but if he didn't know who I was, honestly, without any hyperbole, I really believe I could call up Sid Roth's program and say, Sid, I was just abducted by a UFO. Elvis was flying the UFO. Bigfoot and Jimmy Hoffa were on it. And Elvis flew me right into heaven and gave me a tour of heaven and showed me my own personal mansion. I honestly believe that he would have me on his program the next week. I'm not exaggerating. There's a, a gentleman 
named Smith Wigglesworth, who was a faith healer, British guy, but he was a faith healer in the first half of the 20th century, so you know the 1900s. And Smith Wigglesworth was known for healing people in a very unusual way. Smith Wigglesworth claimed to be able to see demons attached to people, whether it was a demon of cancer, demon of arthritis, whatever sickness you had, you had the disease of fill in the blank. I mean, the demon of fill in the blank. And so the way that, that Smith Wigglesworth would heal someone would be to kick or punch the person to dislodge said demon from that individual. He would go up and kick them and punch them. You know, just like we see Jesus and the, uh, the apostles doing, right? right. <laughs> but watch this. Sid Roth on this program is interviewing the granddaughter of Smith Wigglesworth, and Sid Roth reenacts one of the stories that is attributed to Smith Wigglesworth. Watch this. my world, where it's naturally supernatural. I have read of the great men and women of faith. One in particular intrigues me so much. His name, Smith Wigglesworth. He had some of the most outrageous miracles I ever heard of in my life. Uh, let me give you one example. Some parents had a two-month-old baby dying in the hospital. The parents kidnapped the child, took the child to a Smith Wigglesworth meeting, and Smith looks at the child, looks at the parents and says, can I do what God tells me to do? Well, what would you do if you were the parents? The child's dying anyway, right? He takes the baby, two-month-old, throws the baby against the wall. The baby. Then the baby's on the floor. He have you ever seen someone play soccer? Have you ever seen them uh, kick a soccer ball? He does that with the baby. The baby falls into the congregation. No crying. Is it dead? 100% healed. No crying. Is that not shocking? In addition to the spiritual dangers of this kind of theology, there are physical dangers to this kind of theology. And one of the charismatic mantras that you hear is this, what God does for one, he'll do for you. And Smith Wigglesworth, I mean, he's one of the charismatic generals. They revere him. And so someone is sitting at home, and they're watching Sid Roth. And by the way, that video is up on his YouTube channel right now. You can go and look it up right now. It's still there. Someone sitting at home, they're watching this from Sid Roth, and they're thinking, my kid is sick. My neighbor's kid is sick. What God does for one, he'll do for you. And lest you think that there aren't people in this world dumb enough to believe that, the very fact that he put this on his television program and it went around the world and is on his YouTube channel to this very day is self-evident proof that there are people dumb enough in this world to believe that.
shocking. Absolutely shocking. Some of you have heard of Dr. Michael Brown. Dr. Michael Brown is one of the leading apologists in the charismatic movement, widely regarded as, as probably their most intellectual um, theologians, charismatic theologians. Watch this from Dr. Michael Brown. He's friends with Sid Roth. I'm with my good friend, Dr. Michael Brown. Mike, how long have we known each other? We became friends in 1984. That's, that's a long time, whatever that is. 33 years. 33 years. So they've been good, close personal friends since 1984, which is now, what, 37 years. And Michael Brown fully endorses Sid Roth. There is zero discernment in the charismatic movement. Zero. But back to the theology of this. We're told from those who believe that God is speaking to us outside of Scripture that prayer is a two-way street. Have you heard this before? Prayer is a two-way street. That's what we're told. That we pray to God and then we listen real hard, listen for God to talk back to us. And I don't mean to mock, but a lot of us have done this, right? Years ago, before I knew any better, I did this. Because I I was taught this, prayer is a two-way street. So you pray to God, and you tell Him what's going on in your life. And you've got some big decision to make, and you're not sure what to do. And so you, you talk to Him for a while, and then you get real quiet, and you listen real hard for God to talk back. And then all of a sudden, what happens? After a few seconds, a thought, inevitably, right? Just kind of just kind of flashes through our minds, and we think, oh, oh, was that you, Lord? Or was that me? Was that God, or was that the pizza I ate tonight? I mean, how do you know? How, how, how do you know when it's God speaking to you? But this is what we're told. It's a two-way street. Watch this from Robert Morris. You know... If we said, we're going to have a class on prayer, you'd say, that's, that's, I need that. And even the disciples said, teach us to pray. But let me remind you that hearing God is the second half of prayer. Because if you can't hear God, why would you pray? Now, one reason is to make our requests and petitions be known to God. But God never intended prayer to be a giving of our to-do list to him every morning. He intended prayer to be communication between a father and his children. And if you'll just take some time and start to listen, you'll be amazed that he'll speak. So, prayer is a two-way street. Is this true? Is there any... Is there any instruction for us in Scripture about how to pray and it being a two-way street? Well, in short, no, there's not. In fact, there's one example in Luke chapter 11 where Jesus had the perfect opportunity to teach this. In Luke chapter 11, the disciples asked Jesus, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. What a great opportunity, right? I mean, the ball is sitting on the prayer is a two-way street tee waiting for Jesus to just knock it out of the park. Guys, I'm so glad you asked me that. Here's how you do it. You talk to God and you get real quiet and you listen real hard for Him to talk back to you. Is that what He said? No, He said nothing of the sort. He said, when you pray, say, Father, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Nothing. Nothing about prayer being a two-way street. This is something that we have completely fabricated. We have created out of whole cloth that is not supported in Scripture. There is nothing in the Bible that instructs us that that prayer is a two-way street. Nothing. Well, what about the still small voice? I mean, Scripture talks about God speaking to us in a still small voice, doesn't it? Well, Beth Moore says this. She says, there's a time to give up and a time to keep trying. Sometimes the time to keep trying feels a whole lot like the time to give up. The only difference is the still small voice of the Holy Spirit within you saying, try again. So Beth Moore believes that God speaks to us in a still small voice. Well, doesn't the Bible have something to say about that? A still small voice, isn't it in the Bible somewhere? It, it is. It is. It's in 1 Kings chapter 19. So let's go to it. And you must have it in the King James, by the way. Okay? Because if, if you don't have the King James, you're not going to find still small voice. But in the King James, it is in 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, for context, this is Elijah. Elijah had just had this dramatic confrontation with the false prophets of Baal. Remember that? And Elijah called down fire from heaven, destroyed the the false prophets of Baal or Baal or however you want to pronounce it, and uh, destroyed them, destroyed their altars, destroyed their sacrifices. Dramatic victory. And then right after that, Jezebel, the woman Jezebel, threatened Elijah, and he fled for his life. It's kind of an odd thing. I mean, he had this dramatic victory, and then this one woman gets after him, and he gets out of Dodge. He runs into the wilderness and ends up in the back of a cave out in the wilderness, and this is, this is where we pick up. Beginning in verse 11. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before... Remember, this is King James. It explains unusual English. Break the, in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. There it is, right there. Still, small voice. Now, this is an unusual construction in Hebrew. The most literal rendering of it is something like the sound of a whisper, the sound of a quiet whisper, something like that. It's an unusual construction, but it's only the King James that has it this way. So, well, there it is, right there. How can you argue that God speaks to, that he does not speak to people in still small voices. Well, let's look at the next verse. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in, the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Dear friends, This still small voice was not some inner impression inside his head. It was not internal. It was external. It was not subjective. It was an external, objective, audible voice. Elijah heard this voice externally to him. It was an audible voice, just like you are hearing my voice right now, externally and audible to you. It says he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out. 
to, stood in the, to stand in the entrance of the cave, and that's when he heard the voice more, more clearly, what are you doing here, Elijah? It was not internal, it was external. It was not a hunch, it was not a subjective thing, it was not a, some words in his head, it was an external audible voice. So can we please do away with the whole still small voice thing? Okay, this has been totally taken out of context. And we've created an entire theology out of something that is based upon one particular translation, still small voice, and even then it's been completely taken out of context to mean something it never meant in the first place. Please, let's do away with the still small voice thing. Well, what about... My sheep hear my voice. I mean, didn't Jesus say, my sheep hear my voice? You, you can't argue with that. Well, let's watch. All right. So John chapter 10, look at verse 1. We're talking about we're sheep and we can hear God. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, now watch this carefully, and the sheep, watch, hear his voice. Can you just say those three words? Hear his voice. So John 10, 27 to me is the most concise and comprehensive verse in Scripture about hearing God. Uh, It is when Jesus says, my sheep. Hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Bada boom, bada bing. I mean, you can't argue with that, right? It says it right there. Well, let's look at it in context, shall we? And to get the context, you only need to back up just one verse. Let's look at verse 26. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he says to them, You do not believe... Because you're not of my sheep. So even that verse, verse 26, gives us an indication. Something bigger is at play here. Jesus is talking about belief in him. You do not believe. Why? Because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. And look at verse 28. And I give eternal life to them. Friends, the context here is salvation. This is regeneration. This is the effectual call of the gospel. This is some, when someone passes from death into life. This is when someone is made alive in Christ. The new birth. This is not talking about God whispering to you in some voice inside your noggin telling you where to go to have lunch one day. What a terrible trivialization to such a beautiful passage of Scripture. Do you know what you are, Christian? Everyone in here, for everyone in here who knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, do you know what you are? You're a sheep. Do you know what you were before you came to Christ? Not a goat. You were a sheep. You were just a lost sheep. You were a lost sheep out there in the pasture of life with your head down, grazing, minding your own business. But then all of a sudden one day you hear 
a voice. And you perk your head up and you see the shepherd and you go to him. This is the good shepherd calling his lost sheep to himself in salvation. Not talking about God telling you to take a right turn instead of a left turn or to go to McDonald's instead of Dairy Queen or something like that. What a terrible trivialization of a beautiful, beautiful, profound, deep passage of Scripture. And you don't have to, I say deep, deep in its meaning, not deep that it's hard to understand. This is not hard to understand. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand the meaning of John 10, 27. Just read it in English in its context. It's very clear. And let me tell you something, dear ones. Anybody, any, if you ever hear a preacher take John 10, 27 and reduce it and trivialize it in such an, an inexcusable way as what these popular preachers do with it, then that person has absolutely no business preaching or teaching God's Word. If that's your understanding of John 10, 27, get out of the pulpit. Shut your ministry down because you've got no business teaching God's Word if that is what you get out of John 10, 27. It's, it's inexcusable. Inexcusable. And look at what Jesus says. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you've ever wondered about eternal security, whether or not you can lose your salvation, spend some time in John chapter 10. No one will snatch them out of my hand. When the good shepherd calls his sheep to himself, they come to him, he holds them in his hand. And as if his hand were not strong enough, and it is, but look at verse 29. My Father who has given them to me, let's pause here. You, Christian, are a gift that has been given from the Father to the Son in eternity past. That's what you are. You are a love gift from the Father to the Son. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus is holding us in His strong hand. And then He takes the Father's hand, as it were, and wraps it around that of His own. And friends, ain't nobody getting out of that. You are secure in Christ. This is a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture. And it is absolutely inexcusable to reduce it to something as trivial and menial as what these popular evangelical preachers do with it. Uh-oh. <laughs> Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. This is the hottest selling devotional book on the market. It is light years ahead of everything else out there and has been for right at a decade now has sold tens and tens of millions of copies Jesus Calling is no ordinary devotional book and I want to show you some excerpts that I have taken from the introduction to this book no edits on my part copied pasted this is what Sarah Young says she says during the same year in 92 I began reading God Calling 
a devotional book by two anonymous listeners. These women practice waiting quietly in God's presence, pencils and papers in hand, recording the messages they receive from him. Now, God Calling is indeed a book, devotional book, written back in the 1930s. I have a copy of it myself, written by two anonymous female mystics. We don't even know the names of these ladies. Best I can tell, probably Roman Catholic mystics. But these ladies wanted to learn how to hear the voice of God. And so they practiced waiting in the presence of God. And it's like the more they practiced, they, they finally tuned in to just the right frequency And when they hit just the right frequency, God started calling them, God calling, and they wrote down what he was saying. This was the inspiration for Sarah Young to write Jesus Calling. Okay? And Sarah Young, when you read these devotionals in Jesus Calling, 365 of them, they're all written in the first person for Jesus. I, Jesus, am such and such. I will do this. I will do that. They're all written in the first person for Jesus. And Jesus, the Jesus of the Jesus calling is ex- extremely feminine. It's not a masculine Jesus at all. It's a very feminine Jesus. Sarah Young goes on. She says, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. You see, the Bible just was not enough for Sarah Young. It's not that Sarah Young denies that the Bible is the Word of God. Oh, she would absolutely say that it is. But it wasn't enough for her. She yearned for more. And what is true of Sarah Young is true for the vast majority of evangelicals today. The Bible just is not enough for them. They're not going to deny the Bible. Oh, yeah, the Bible is the Word of God. Yeah, but, but I need something more. Here's my question for all those people who would say that they need something more than the Bible. Have you mastered this book from cover to cover? From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, you have squeezed every drop of truth there is to be squeezed from these pages. I mean, you have wrung it dry. You have mastered it from start to finish, cover to cover. If the answer to that question is no, and it is, because you know what, dear friends? Every person in this room, we could spend a thousand lifetimes studying this book, combine our, our, our culminative knowledge, culminative knowledge, am I saying that word right? Combine all of our knowledge, and we would just barely scratch the surface of what is in this book. So please don't tell me the Bible's not enough for you. You don't even understand what you have in black and white right in front of you. Don't tell me the Bible's not enough. What an insult to the Word of God. She yearned for more. Sadly, that is the case for the vast majority of professing Christians today. Then she says, I decided to listen to God with pen in hand, writing down whatever I believed He was saying. Houston, we have a problem. Just like the ladies who wrote God Calling, and they tuned in to just the right frequency, Sarah Young tuned in to just the right frequency. Jesus started calling her, And with pen in hand, she began to write down what he was saying. Now, if that is what is happening, if Jesus is really calling Sarah Young and she's writing down what he's saying, you know what she's doing? She's writing scripture. That's what she's doing. She's writing scripture. Because whatever Jesus is saying to her should have the same authority as any verse in the Bible. 
And dear friends, what is true with Sarah Young and her claims of Jesus calling is true for everyone who would say, God spoke to me and said, quote, da-da-da-da-da. Because whatever God says to you should be just as authoritative as any verse in this book. So whatever God is saying to you, whatever God is saying to all these other folks out there, we should add that to this book. There's just one problem with that. This book says do not add to this book. Old and New Testament, by the way. We are not to add to the Word of God. Oh, well, it's Justin. I mean, God speaks to us, but it, but it doesn't mean it's as authoritative as Scripture. That's a common notion, too. Let me show you this from Matt Chandler. I think this is the right clip. Watch this from Matt Chandler. So, so let's talk about what prophecy is and what prophecy isn't. Um, the thus saith the Lord, look right at me, is over. Look at me. When this text is talking about prophecy, it's not talking about the way Jeremiah prophesied or Isaiah prophesied. Or, you know, that, that's closed. That's canonized. So you will never prophesy in a way that's on par, equal to, anywhere near the inerrant, infallible word of God. That's closed, shut. And so the best you've got, the best you've got is the humility to say, I think the Lord would have me lay this before you. Okay, two points. One, Matt Chandler says, you know, it, when God speaks to you, it, it, it's, it doesn't rise to the same level as Scripture because, you know, this is canonized and so it doesn't carry the same authority. It's still God speaking, but it doesn't carry that authority. Now, wait a minute. On what basis do you say that? Friends, if God is speaking, God is speaking. And whatever He says carries just as much authority as any verse in the Bible. God cannot speak less authoritatively on one occasion than He does on another. If God is speaking, God is speaking. What makes this book authoritative? What, what makes, why do we say we believe and follow and obey this book? What makes it authoritative? Is, that it's, is the, the fact that it's bound in a nice little leather cover with a spine on it and chapter divisions and typesetting? Is that what makes it authoritative? No. What makes it authoritative is that it's the Word of God. And so when you say God spoke to me and said, quote, da-da-da-da-da, then friends, that should carry the same authority as any verse in this book. God cannot speak in the Bible and really, really, really mean it. But when He speaks to us today outside of the Bible, He still means it, but He doesn't mean it quite as much as He meant it here. How's that work? If God is speaking, God is speaking. And then Matt Chandler says, the best we can do today is to say, I think the Lord would have me say to you. I think the Lord I think the Lord said such and such. You know, I just really you hear this from charismatics all the time and non-charismatics theoretically. I just really feel like the Lord is trying to tell us said nobody in the Bible ever. <laughs> Show me one place anywhere in the Bible, Old or New Testament. When you see a true prophet saying something like, I, I, 
I think the Lord is trying to tell us, friends, you will search the Bible in vain for that kind of language. Some of you may be thinking, oh, wait, wait, what about Samuel? You know, Samuel, the boy Samuel was with Eli, and he heard his name called three times. But a couple points to be made about that. One, when you read that, when you read the text, the context of it, that was in a day and age in which the Bible says a word from the Lord was rare in those days. So God was not speaking in that period of time. Two, Samuel was a boy, just a boy. Three, even though Samuel initially did not know the source of that voice, he still knew exactly what the voice said. He's calling his name, and he knew that. So you can't, can't play the Samuel card with this. I feel like the Lord said to me, really, well, let's look in the, at the biblical text. The word of the Lord came to Abram. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Even in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit spoke, and he spoke with crystal clear clarity, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Crystal clear. None of this, I think the Lord might be trying to tell us, no, crystal clear. Clear. No ambiguity. When God spoke, everybody knew what he said. Clearly. So we have created out of whole cloth this whole notion that we just can hope and feel like the Lord is trying to tell. That is something that is absolutely foreign to the word of God. But we've created it to accommodate modern evangelicals today who do not understand the biblical truth that God is no longer speaking today outside of Scripture. And because He's not speaking today outside of Scripture, we've got to create this false theology to accommodate people who think that He is and want to believe that He is and people for whom the Bible is not enough. So how does God speak to us today? Well, let's go to the text. Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The writer of Hebrews is very clear. He says that in the old days, God spoke in a lot of different ways. Indeed, God spoke to Moses up on the mountain through a storm and thunder. Spoke to Elijah, uh, excuse me, to Moses through a burning bush. He spoke to Elijah through that still small voice. In Numbers chapter 22, God even made a donkey talk. So God did indeed speak in many different portions and in many different ways. But in these last days, says the writer of Hebrews, he has spoken to us in his son. Friends, Jesus is the final speaking of God. The final speaking of God. Everything that God has to say to us, He has said in His Son, Jesus Christ. And we have a perfect, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient record of that in His Word. Jesus is the final speaking of God. And some of you may be thinking, well, you know, I remember back in 1987, I, was, I woke up in the middle of the night, 3 o'clock in the morning, and all of a sudden I just had this... I was thinking about my friend Bob 
And I don't know why, I just woke up thinking about Bob, and I felt like I needed to pray for Bob, and I prayed for Bob. And then, you know what, I found out the next day that Bob was in a car accident at 3 o'clock in the night. It, you know, how do you explain that? We hear those kind of stories, you know, variations of, of that kind of a thing. I would say a couple of points. Number one, I can't exegete an experience. All I can do is exegete Scripture. I cannot exegete your experience or my experience. All we can do is exegete Scripture. Another thing is that those kinds of unusual stories, they're not relegated to Christians. Pagans report the same kind of odd things, you know. And a lot of what's happening is we're kind of looking back on things that have happened and reading our own understanding into things that have already happened. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. But when it comes to evaluating our experiences, I would point you to a number of texts, but I would point you to this one especially. The Apostle Peter, writing in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Of course, Peter here is talking about the transfiguration of Christ, right? Matthew chapter 17. Peter, James, and John were there with Jesus, and all of a sudden, Jesus, before their eyes, was transfigured. And Moses and Elijah appeared on both sides of him. That glory that Jesus had with the Father before the world was, that was veiled by his human flesh while he was on earth, for a, a brief time there on that day, the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, his glory was, was, that veil was peeled back, and they saw him in his transfigured glory, and they heard this voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now that is an experience. And notice what Peter says of this experience in the next verse. He says this, For, or because, we have the prophetic word made more sure. Made more certain. What prophetic word? What's he talking about? The prophetic word of which he speaks is Scripture. And he says, Scripture is made more certain even than what he and James and John experienced at the Mount of Transfiguration. Think about that. This is Peter. This is the guy who saw it. And friends, whatever experience you think you may have had or I think I may have had, I can guarantee you one thing. It pales in comparison to the experience that Peter, James, and John had at the Mount of Transfiguration. I guarantee it doesn't rise to that level. And if Peter could say that the written word of God is more certain even than that, then the written word of God is far more certain than what you've experienced or what have I, I have experienced. So what do we do about waking up that night, 3 o'clock in the you know, middle of the night, 3 o'clock in the morning, and praying for our friend who turns out was in a car accident? Whatever it was, 
here's, where we're, here's how we characterize it and categorize it. It was a kind providence of God. It was a kind providence of God. Whatever it was, it was that. A kind providence of God, and that's where we leave it. You know, from, I um, grew up in Mississippi, and one of my best friends is a, a guy named Chad Stewart. Chad and I grew up together. Um, ever, we've known each other ever since we were toddlers. But he's still in Mississippi. I'm in Montana. We live almost 2,000 miles away from each other. So I hardly ever see Chad anymore. But from time to time, I'll think about Chad, and maybe I'll pray for Chad. Is that God bringing Chad to my remembrance? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe I just thought about Chad. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not saying that God can't bring someone to our remembrance. God can do whatever he wants to do. But I am saying this, that even if God does bring people to our remembrance at a certain time or place, or you know, people say, well, God gave me a burden for this or that, you know, use that lingo. Even if it is, even if God does do that on occasion, we, we don't know whether or not it's God doing it. Okay, it's not like we have the theological equivalent of the bat phone inside of our minds, and, and when it's God doing it, it starts flashing. It's like, oh, oh, yeah, thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, I know that's you. We don't have that. So, you know, maybe he does. Who knows? Whatever it is, it's a kind providence of God, and that's where we leave it. Well, how do we know God's will for our lives? I mean, the Bible doesn't tell me if I'm supposed to be a dentist or a, a plumber or an accountant, you know, or a truck driver. I mean, uh, God doesn't tell me, the Bible doesn't tell me which job to take or, you know, where to live or, you know, all these big decisions, right? And maybe you've got a big decision to make in your life and you're not sure what to do. And the Bible doesn't give us instructions on vocational choices or things like that, where to go to college or whatever, or if to go to college. You know, so how do I know God's will for my life? I want to simplify this for you. Here's how you know God's will for your life. Read, study, and obey God's word. Read, study, and obey God's word. If you're not doing that, then nothing else matters anyway. So, number one, read, study, and obey God's word. Number two, pray for wisdom. If you've got some big decision to make and you're not sure what to do, then ask God for wisdom. Pray for wisdom. Uh, the Bible says that. If you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Now, if you're not doing step number one, then don't even bother with step number two. Because if you're not reading, studying, and obeying God's word, don't bother asking God for wisdom. He's not going to give it to you. But if you are, pray for wisdom. And next, seek wise, godly counsel. book of Proverbs says there is wisdom, there is safety in a multitude of counselors. And I do this in my own life. If I have something come up in my ministry, my life or whatever, and I'm not sure what to do, um, then I've got people in my life that I can go to and ask them for their counsel. Now, the first person I'm going to go to is Kathy. She and I are going to talk about it. But if after the two of us talk about it, we decide, you know, we need some other eyes on this, then I've got some men in my life that I go to, and I'll say, brothers, this is what's going on. What do you think I should do? What's your counsel? And you know what? That's served me well. That has served me well. There is wisdom in doing that. And then Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 
Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he might direct your paths. He'll direct your paths if he's got nothing better to do. He will direct your paths. Friends, he spoke the universe into existence. I think he can direct our paths. You don't have to worry, oh, well, if I, you know, if I, if I choose this job instead of this job, and God really wanted me at this job, then I'm just going to make, make a mess of my life and everything's going to collapse like a house of cards. No, relax. Relax. He spoke the universe into existence. He can direct our paths. It's interesting, when you read through the New Testament, read through the book of Acts, even in the apostolic age, even in that age in which we had apostles walking around and God was speaking to people in a direct quotable sense outside of Scripture, even then you do not see the apostles asking God to show them His individual specific will for their lives. You don't see that in the New Testament. What do we see? Well, Paul says that he decided to spend the winter at Nicopolis. Why did Paul spend the winter at Nicopolis? Because he heard a still small voice? Because he sought God's individual specific will for where he wanted him to spend the winter at Nicopolis? Or where to spend the winter? No. Did he put out a fleece? Lord, if you want me to spend the winter at Nicopolis, let the fleece be wet. And the, no, he didn't do that. He just he did it because he decided to do it. That's why he spent the winter at Nicopolis. He decided to spend the winter in Nicopolis. Paul stayed in Athens by himself and he sent Timothy along because we thought it best. That's why he did it, because we thought it was best to do so. You don't see the apostles asking for God's specific individual will for their lives. You see the apostles just doing stuff. They just did stuff. And on occasion, you see God providentially hindering them from what they planned on doing, but they just did stuff. And this is in the apostolic age. So, dear ones, just do stuff. You know, read, study, and obey God's Word and just do stuff. Just make a wise, informed decision and just live your life. Spend the winter at Nicopolis if you want to spend the winter at Nicopolis. Do whatever you want to do. Just do stuff. Do it for the glory of God. He'll direct your paths. He'll direct your paths. Now, I want to conclude with a, a little bit of an extended quote from our friend Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, Honor the Spirit of God as you would honor Jesus Christ if He were present. If Jesus Christ were dwelling in your house, you would not ignore Him. You would not go about your business as if He were not there. Do not ignore the presence of the Holy Spirit in your soul. To Him pay your constant adorations. Reverence the august guest who has been pleased to make your body a sacred abode. Love Him, obey Him, worship Him. Take care, now watch this, take care never to impute the vain imaginings of your fancy to Him. I have seen the Spirit of God shamefully dishonored by persons. I hope they were insane who have said that they have had this and that revealed to them. There has not for some years passed by over my head a single week in which I have, not pest, I have not been pestered with the revelations of hypocrites or maniacs, 
semi-lunatics are very fond of coming with messages from the Lord to me. And it may save them some trouble if I tell them once and for all that I will have none of your stupid messages. Never dream that events are revealed to you by heaven, or you may, be, or you may come to be like those idiots who dare impute their blatant follies to the Holy Spirit. If you feel your tongue itch to talk nonsense, trace it to the devil, not to the Spirit of God. Whatever is to be revealed by the Spirit to any of us is in the Word of God already. He adds nothing to the Bible and never will. Let persons who have revelations of this or that and the other go to bed and wake up in their senses. I only wish they would follow the advice and no longer insult the Holy Spirit by laying their nonsense at His door. Words of Charles Spurgeon. How much reproach has been brought upon the name of Christ by people saying, God told me this and God told me that, when he told them absolutely nothing? How many false prophecies have been given? What a laughing stock these charismatic prophets have made of themselves just in the last year and a half. But how much reproach they have brought upon the name of Christ. Charismatic prophets missed literally everything last year. Everything. They got everything 180 degrees wrong, and the world is laughing at them. And how much damage has been done to individual believers who have been taught that they're supposed to be hearing the voice of God on a regular basis when the Bible says no such thing? You know what's interesting? You can read through the New Testament, and what do we see? In the Gospels, we see the life and ministry of Jesus, right? His life, his signs, his wonders, his teachings, his crucifixion, his resurrection. We see all that in the Gospels. What do we see in the book of Acts? We see the birth of the church and the spread of the Gospel as it spread like wildfire. What do we see in the books, the pastoral epistles? You know, we see in the books of Romans and letters to the Corinthians and the letter to the Ephesians and Galatians. And we what do we see in these books? We see all kinds of theology. We see all kinds of doctrine. We see, we see uh, instructions about how to deal with conflict between believers. We see qualifications for elders, qualifications for deacons. We see uh, eschatology in the book of Revelation. We see eschatology sprinkled all throughout the the New Testament, so we see all of these things. We see how a church is to be organized, plurality of elders. We, we see all of these instructions about all of these many, many things. But there is not one syllable of help that God has given us in how to hear His voice. You ever thought about that? Go to a Christian bookstore. Five steps to hear the voice of God. Ten steps to hear the voice of God. How to know the voice of God. How to da-da-da-da-da. The... the, the the bookshelves practically sag under the weight of all the, the books that have been written, how to know the voice of God. And yet, if this is such a vitally important part of our life, why is it that the New Testament, Old Testament either, it offers us not one syllable of help in how to do it? It's a good question. Number one, because when God speaks, everybody knows when he's speaking. Number two, God is not speaking today outside of Scripture. Friends, if you want to hear God speak to you, there is one way. I guarantee you, you will hear God speak. Read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak to you audibly, read it out loud. 
100% guaranteed you will hear him speak.